I, Jimmy George, wait up a sec. Hey, come on, Rick. I got people hey, waiting for you. That's Tyler! <laughs> what are you looking at? That's Tyler! You think you go? Tyler! Woo! Neptune High, right? Check it out, right here! Go see Devils! You and me, Tyler! Yeah! Go, Tyler! Go, Tyler! Go, Tyler! Go! Go, Tyler! Go, Tyler! Go, Tyler! Whoa! Lincoln, Tyler! Lincoln, Tyler! Lincoln! Ow! My lucky number seven! Welcome to Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host, Mike. And today we continue our trilogy with Brian De Palma's Snake Eyes from 1998, a film I saw theatrically after I got too scared <laughs> watching Blade. The opening scenes of Blade were quite, <laughs> quite a bit much for me. And actually, my father worked in a movie theater, and he's the one who was like, yeah, what do you want to watch? I was like, I want to watch Blade. That looks like a good time. He's like, all right, because, you know, he's irresponsible. <laughs> and so <laughs> uh, I came out of He was working at the time, and I went into Blade, and I came out. I was like, "That's uh, yeah, I, I'm not feeling this movie, Pop. And he's like, what else is playing? And I think Dead Man on Campus, the one with uh, Zach Morris. And I was like, I guess that the one. the drummer from that thing you do? I've never I, seen I, it, I but so. I think so, yes. And then I went into that one, and... Uh, Such a fickle young man. But <laughs> <laughs> as, as my father was, like, getting me into the theater, he, uh, you know, something risque was happening. He was like, oh, that's not the one for you either. And so we went out. And then I ended up watching Snake Eyes. <laughs> Which is... Of all things. PG-13, I think. Yeah, you're not getting... I don't think so. You're not getting the full De Palma. There's no nudity here, although there's... Wait, Carlo Snake Eyes PG-13? I think so. You do see her... Ample bosom, quite a bit, covered in blood. There are multiple scenes True. where she's cleaning herself. But there's a, quite a bit of violence in it. Oh, Webb. Yeah, I, you're underestimating American audiences, considering Snake Eyes to be uh, violent at all. Compared to Blade, where I believe the opening sequence are a bunch of vampires at a discotheque showering in blood. <laughs> That's right. Nope. Uh, I watched both of those. I believe opening weekend, uh, I was there for Blade and uh, Snake Eyes. I do not remember. I have the wiki in front of me, the poster, which is <laughs> Nicolas Cage uh, staring right at you, his hands clasped, uh, surrounded by purple, his purple jacket and uh, this purple poster. The tagline, well, it's Cage, Snake Eyes, which is fantastic. <laughs> tagline is, believe everything except your eyes. And then at the bottom, watch closely, August 7th. What are you telling me here, poster? <laughs> <laughs> Don't believe your eyes. Watch closely. <laughs> <laughs> i like it oh and you know what that poster kind of sums up everything that we need to know about nick cage like as an actor he has this sweet spot between acting and overacting and he kind of goes on both sides like you look at something like adaptation where he is clearly acting his ass off and i believe kaufman 
or Spike Jones this where he's like, I want you to act in this manner. And so he said, and Nick Cage has stated that I took everything that my instincts told me and I threw them out the window and did exactly what the writer or director wanted. And he got an Oscar nomination out of it. And then he goes kind of on the other side where I guess maybe something like Mandy, which I really didn't dig. Still haven't or... seen. You know, you're the main influence on that. It doesn't look like something I would like. But every time I, I bring it up, it's on some streaming service, something I subscribe to, or it was like on sale on iTunes. You are always the, uh, I don't know, either angel or devil, since I've not actually The gatekeeper. Put, I'm yeah, the gatekeeper. You're the one saying, uh, I don't think it's for you, Mike. I don't think it's for you. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think it's for you, but I would love for you to watch it and confirm it. I would not pay for it. <laughs> okay. I would not. Gotcha. I would try before you buy and then there are films like Bad Lieutenant, where he goes so over the top that it's glorious. So, But he finds, I think in the 90s, really, that middle ground, stuff like Con Air, or The Rock, and I think Snake Eyes right there, too, where he has moments where his characters have these bursts of creativity. Uh, specifically, I think, that come from the actor. The, the entire beginning of the film, the go, Tyler, go, Tyler, go, Tyler, go. I'm like, oh. My life checked out right at that moment, that moment that you're quoting. uh, No! She said, I can't remember, you know, for this month, um, she was definitely not going to be down for Rashomon. She was like, you know, are you watching anything that's like, you know, kind of silly? I was like, you want silly? we got snake eyes. Here we go. She's like, (laughs) okay, fine. And she probably looked at whatever the square was. I believe I watched it on HBO, and it's like him mouth agape screaming pointing at someone and he's got the chest hair like overflowing this like absurd jacket and shirt that he's wearing uh, i do not like that is i only have one note by the way for snake eyes um and it was not a fan of cage losing the stylish shirt which is like gold with like you know brownish like flowers with the exposed chest hair when he starts his investigation, I do not like that the film is like making a comment like, okay, now it's time for him to get serious. Now he's actually going to play the cop as opposed to the spectator. Not a fan. I wanted that shirt there the whole time. Uh, or maybe no shirt and it's just exposed <laughs> chest with that absurd jacket. But anyway, we're watching this and my wife was like, you know what? You were on us. <laughs> this is really silly. I still don't want it. <laughs> like, And that was the point where she's like, because it's. It's the De Palma, the opening tracking shot that's going to establish oh, great shot. Yeah. Um, the location, all of the various cast of characters, like sort of, you know, plotting against you know one another for their own means uh, in on this conspiracy. And for the most part, it is Nicolas Cage being turned loose. Like, take us from one character to the next with your antics. And I remember I watched this. I was 15 when this came out. And I was watching this in a pretty much empty theater. And in fact, it might have been empty. I just remember me and my brother. It was very sparse. And I was enthralled by it. And he hated it. <laughs> he hated <laughs> Cage, like, basically yelling at him. He thought it was corny. I, you know, it's it's something that we've talked about. I think we did uh, Dress to Kill on this podcast for a B-Sides. So the Palma, you know, comes back up for round two with us. And I remember Tarantino one of his filmmaking buddies taking him aside saying that it maybe was time for him to leave De Palma behind as someone that he would want to mimic as far as like, yeah, it's good for like a teenager, but you know, you're an adult now, no more time for De Palma films. 
And I think those were the two roads me and my brother both took when it came to like the type <laughs> of films we liked is that I always stayed right there with Nicolas Cage screaming in someone's face, hitting on every woman he sees, and the De Palma tracking shots. And I like it. It's a nice place to be. To hell with my wife and my brother. My family and my <laughs> wife, they all go to hell. Leave me with De Palma. <laughs> I'm right there with you. And I credit Trilogy and Theory for really getting me knee-deep into... De Palma's filmography uh, more seriously. Uh, my brother as well. We recently watched Blowout, and boy, we got to find a way to work that into a trilogy. You son of a bitch! I had that in our, trilogy <laughs> in our first six months, and that was one that you you, you took the big red marker and you just <laughs> xed out that entire trilogy. <laughs> I know, I know. We need to go back to it because now I really want to talk about it. <laughs> De Palma's camera work is outstanding in this film. As I, I, I'm so dynamic. I don't know why I even doubted it for a second. He adjusts, he pans, uh, he focuses on exactly what he wants you to see at exactly the right time. It's so good. And the first, whew, I'd say first half of this film is damn good. Really, really good, trashy fun. And... As soon as the film kind of reveals itself and the plot, you know, really starts to unfold, that's when I become more and more bored, but never by the craft. To the end, De Palma continues to be as dynamic and as interesting behind the camera as the first half. So at the very least, even if you don't enjoy the story, I think from a filmmaking level, I think it's it's, it's still top notch. And... The reveal is so complicated, and it gets into that political thriller, the Dan Brown territory, mm. where I'm just like, ah. When it was a whodunit, and the motivations weren't exactly uh, laid out, I think it was way more interesting. Um, the most powerful stories, as I mentioned, I think last week, is where the motivations are generally kind of simple, and relatable, as soon as you get into the, oh, the military screwed me over and I'm trying to protect these individuals, and you get into missile contracts. <laughs> <laughs> That's around when I'm like, oh, man, now we're getting to stuff that, yeah, it's it, not, not that murdering somebody is relatable, but I think feelings are relatable. And this one wasn't quite there for me. Hey, De Palma. Anytime you start to have the villain speech fight, cut to the whistleblower's tits again. Do it. <laughs> like, she's, <laughs> yeah. she's somewhere in the hotel. I, I would agree with you. Um, I, I think I had similar feelings uh, as a teenager when I watched it, where I didn't really care whenever, especially when we start following along the villain uh, on its own. Like I, The energy is zapped out when Cage is not on the screen here. And so what I remembered most about this movie, I, I've seen it probably a few times. Uh, probably as a young man, I, I gave it a good few spins on DVD. But as <laughs> I have distance from it, I don't remember the last time I watched it. But I think I could have gone beat for beat, line for line on that tracking shot <laughs> with Nicolas Cage just being cock of the walk. And then it starts to get a little bit muddled. Uh, I forgot at one point that the whistleblower played by Carla Gugino, um, she shows up to what she believes to be like this, like political conspiracy, this military conspiracy, uh, wearing eyeglasses. 
And uh, in the attempted assassination in the fray, her glasses get stepped on. And so for the rest of the film, she's basically blind. Uh, eh, I forgot about <laughs> that. It also seems highly unnecessary because they put the casino on lockdown. So I don't really know why we need this added element where she can't really see who she's talking to. It actually doesn't ever come to play either, like a spoiler alert. But there's really nothing big that happens because she can't see. There's all these... Wait, Webb's about to make some sort of comment what? about this no, guest, there, there is... about his weight or something that she tries to hit on. <laughs> no, there is one line of dialogue towards the end when she's speaking to Nick Cage's character uh, where he's kind of giving her the out, being like, no, you weren't a part of this. And uh, she's like, yeah, you're right. I don't know if I saw that. My glasses were he's like, no, you broke your glasses after this event. That's probably the mm. only time it you know comes what, that's into a good play. Point. I actually like that scene a lot more than I expected to as, you know, a grown man, not just a teenager that, that loves, you know, long takes. Um, I, I like that his, he's so angry at this person and he actually verbalizes it in this way that he's angry that she's forcing him out of his comfort zone, <laughs> comfort zone of being a crooked cop. It's like he had limits. Like he admits that he's a crooked cop. He's beating up <laughs> these people for money that they owe him. Like he will take the law into his own hands. Uh, literal blood money. I don't know about that one, De Palma. That that one, that one, like the eyeglasses, comes back where we see the bloody dollar bill again. Uh, but I like that scene between the two of them in the stairwell where um, he's like, "Look, you know, you've basically pushed me." at this one point in my life to be a decent man and I hate you for it. <laughs> and I, I kind of like that. I, I like that he has a threshold uh, and I, I like that he is self-aware enough to, to know that it's like, here's what has to be done. Like, like you're saying in that sequence, like she's even trying to play along with like, yeah, yeah, you're right. We didn't see anything. And he's like, no, we both did like, fuck it. I guess this is what we have to do. The ending is not great. I am always shocked. Uh, I, you're right. That scene I like that scene quite a bit as well, uh, which is uh, a bit surprising for me because anything Carla Gugino does is usually pretty bad. I don't think she's a very talented actress, but in this movie, she really brings her C game. And I'm like, all right, oh, I'm well, totally... How dare you? Um, she's not! Was, Even I'm that Stephen through... King adaptation, Gerald's Game, like that people fawned it. over, I was like, man... It was anybody but her. <laughs> Not a fan of uh, the Spy Kids trilogy, apparently. Um, you love Watchmen. What the hell? You don't like her in that? I... Oh, the, here comes the victim blaming. Is she Her main I've... role is being a victim of sexual assault. You know... yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. You know what? She actually has my favorite line in the Watchmen, uh, which is... Uh, as she's thinking back to her days as uh, Silk Spectre uh, and, and how her daughter is like, how could you even think about looking back at that time and this individual with any kind of fondness? And she says, as you know, you get older, the horrible stuff tends to fade and the good stuff just gets brighter and brighter. It's a great, there are moments she can surprise me, but generally the things that she's in are stuff that i don't generally enjoy I, I don't know how else to say it so uh if there is a performance out there by her that like you gotta see this i'm more than happy to uh, uh watch it because it's been on this feed sir sin city the pearl officer for marv beautiful work i mean beautiful are any of those good performances <laughs> 
they're definitely visually striking. I'll two, give two them great that. performances going on in that sequence with Marv. <laughs> Certainly, <laughs> Mickey Rourke's not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, though, she. I like that scene a lot. I'm glad. And that's the thing. The script has these moments where it finds good things and and De Palma finds good things to do and work with despite the fact your major reveal has... I think 40 minutes into the film you find out that Gary Sinise is the one, uh, the puppet master. And then you need to rely on dramatic irony throughout the whole... Like, Knives Out got away with it. Knives Out was like, okay, the person's dead, and he's the one who did it, and now we're all going to try and empathize with this, with the killer. And it was a great little twist. Loved it. And now you're watching her trying to maneuver all of the other individuals who are who have their own motivation to try and uh, find out who did it and whether they're going to get the money and the house and all that stuff. Great dramatic irony is there. Unfortunately, here there isn't. There isn't really much. Now you're just seeing the villain trying to cover his tracks and everything that Nick Cage is doing, like the camera, the little blimp camera towards the end, and watching him watch the fight from the different camera angles. Again, a lot of perspective being played around within this film. Yet again, Nick Cage, believe everything except your eyes. Now watch closely <laughs> on the blimp, the blimp cam. <laughs> the, the promotional team, they knew. They knew. So a lot of that stuff loses a little bit of its punch, its impact, uh, because you already know who the villain is. And I wish that the film held off even more until the end. And maybe either it wouldn't have worked either way because the plot reveal is so kind of convoluted and and mm, uninteresting. But uh, you know what? There's still a lot to be gained from this film. Do you like the boxer character at all? I feel like he's the only one that they try to give a little bit more to. Uh, both in the sequence where he's forced to throw the fight, and uh, you know, there's there's a beat taken. I mean, more than a beat actually, where. Uh, as they're doing the count, uh, he accidentally almost wins the fight. And so that, uh, I don't know, that sort of despair that he has to have over <laughs> being a traitor uh, to the traitors <laughs> among them is interesting. I I think that much like the twist of who the villain is, um, they do a disservice to that character that it's, you know, after that, sad revelation that he gives to the sturdy cop who then tries to like pat him on the back like hey you know you're just in it to make money you know that you know that's the next one you'll get him buddy don't feel too bad about yourself he absolves him of all of his sins um that at the end as nicholas cage is looking at his literal blood money and deciding no he can't go along with this conspiracy um lincoln shows up the boxer and it's like you know basically like oh you're with them now just a shrug of the shoulders i'm like we've now we're just like, I wish the boxer hadn't even come back into the conspiracy. Yeah. I, I hate that that's just a, like a little added twist where it's like, oh, now he's just the muscle again. It's unnecessary. Not needed. I agree. I think the character was much more dynamic in that initial scene where he is recounting his own version of the event, or at least the version of the events from his eyes, which great. There's a lot of POV shots uh, that uh, De Palma uh, uses, <laughs> including... Uh, the, the, the Carlo Gugino one <laughs> with the blurred vision. Very, very interesting. Good stuff. 
I I like the boxer character in that because that that's when the movie becomes really interesting because you start to reveal more of what happened in the event. And that's where you've got the movie. De Palma's kind of peeling it like an onion. And then he like cuts it like a giant, I don't know, knife. <laughs> as soon as you drop the reveal. You know, for an event that does have like a thousand cameras around for this, this boxing match, like you can probably count on at the very least the ring was always gonna have cameras on it. When this uh, gunfire breaks out. I, I mean, Yes, it helps absolve the the boxer, makes him a sympathetic character that he said he states that he didn't know that anyone was going to die, that he just thought he was just you know being muscled in by the mob or somebody to take a die for financial reasons, whatever. At least, and certainly for him because he's in debt. But considering there's going to be so many cameras, I highly doubt that it's just Nicolas Cage that saw that boxer who was supposed to be knocked out, whip his head up when a gunshot when someone was fired upon. I'd never really understood that aspect of it from Sinise and company that um, you're going to have to probably involve the boxer just a little bit more if he's supposed to play dead in this instance. I guess you, you have Sinise's character saying that, you know, he's trying to make sure that cameras are where, uh, uh, he needs them to be. He mentions that later on. Like, hey, that blimp camera shouldn't have been there, but he wasn't told. Are they going to shoot the boxer for, you know, reacting to, <laughs> to gunfire? Like, I don't... <laughs> eventually someone's going to notice notice that. Um, if if I'm the uh, the boxer, I just lean into it. I just, <laughs> I lean into the fact that it's like, I wasn't really that knocked out. Now someone's shooting, I'm out of here. Like, just, you know, commit to it. Don't, as soon as you see Nicolas Cage with his, a uh, very like fatherly look, like when he realizes the boxer is, has uh, you know taken money out of his pocket. Just don't react. Don't react to Papa Cage on the floor with his "How could you?" eyes <laughs> with a gun in his hand. <laughs> I I can forgive a lot of that because well, sometimes that's how you move the plot forward. You have these coincidences or these moments of chance that uh, give information to one character or another. I think it's okay. I can always tell how De Palma is moving the plot forward whenever we do a podcast on him because one of my tabs, just through the business of podcasting, that's the only reason we'll end up with a leading lady's breasts on my screen because if if I (laughs) Google that actress's name in this particular film, there's going to be uh, titillation here on the, uh, the monitor. I think that, that's probably where the film struggles, right? It's like moving from one, I guess, conspirator to the next. Like, cause you even mentioned there's a cutoff point as far as I guess, where you disengage or you lose interest. And do you think that's, it is totally when Sinise comes in. Do you think that's a, is it um, his performance in any way? Or is that just a part that is unplayable? Because I read that, I think initially it was supposed to be Al Pacino, which I'm not saying he makes that turn uh, seamless, but I would have loved to see Pacino and Cage yelling at each other at the end when they're having these philosophical debates over, you know, gunning this man down for um, military or financial purposes. Sinise is just a little too constrained for my liking to play the heavy. I think that would have been great. I did not know that Pacino was slated to play that character. That would have been awesome because Pacino, everything I said about Nick Cage, in terms of his acting abilities and his range from serious actor to loco, that's exact. You can replace Nick Cage's name and put Pacino right there because there are times when Pacino goes for incredible subtlety, and then you have him in 
Jack and Jill and just utter nonsense. And the 90s is that transitionary period where stuff like Devil's Advocate and Heat, where you see moments of those bursts that the actor decides, you know what, this is the time I'm going to turn it up to 11 for a little bit. I think that would have been great. I think they would have had some wonderful moments. And you can completely believe that he'd be distracted by a pair of tits. And, and it would have been a completely seamless and almost more effective, I think, if it was Pacino. I don't think that it would have lessened the blow, like taking the air completely out of the film in the reveal, but it would have made it more interesting because Pacino is more fascinating to watch on screen than Gary Sinise, who is a great actor, but you're right. Constrained is where he works best, whereas Pacino can be a little unhinged and he can have those monologues where he's like damn it my missiles you know i would have i would have loved it in any capacity he's talking about the redhead who's very top heavy in the chest area. just <laughs> yeah. have him you know like rashomon we just have him cutting back to him talking about his missiles in different contexts over <laughs> and, and nick cage always having to clever we're still talking about <laughs> the military here. <laughs> Love it. That would have been great. You know, just for my own, my own amusement, one of the things... Because I, I saw this a couple of times over the past month. I like to think about this film where Gary Sinise, instead of missiles, he wants to release a video game that's not complete. <laughs> and he's like, that day one patch and subsequent DLC will make it okay. <laughs> I don't know why, but I had that thought towards the end of the film because, you know, I'm losing interest. And I was like, wow, this could work for modern day AAA gaming. number is four billion that doesn't come real handy when you're gambling come on four billion fuck seven not even close i need some more dice four billion divided by six at least <laughs> snake eyes now <laughs> i just said snake eyes <laughs> it's a gambling term Oh, it's an animal time, too. 